As our little ones make their way out to Cathedral Kids, would you join me in prayer? We pray, Father, that you would be with us now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts, grant us grace, Lord, to receive directly from your mouth, and that we would be transformed on the spot through the power of your word. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and fill this place. Fill each one of us to overflowing. And Lord, speak through me now that my words would be your words and your truth would be spoken, heard, and received deep in our hearts here today. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Um, I'll just do a quick disclaimer. Good catch, James McKinney. That was impressive, young man. Um, uh, so the disclaimer I was going to give is uh, why am I up in the pulpit? And uh, for those of you who weren't here last week, it's, it's only so that I can see you and you can see me and perhaps hear a little bit better. I've gotten a bit of feedback from our preaching down here and people have been having a hard time seeing and hearing and paying attention and all of that sort of thing. So we're up here, I'm up here, uh, not out of um, any sense of being above contradiction by any means. Feel free to contradict after the service. So, um, so a few years ago, there was a book that came out, and then immediately after the book, there was a, a movie based on the book uh, that came out. The, the book and the film were both entitled, Heaven is for Real. And uh, it's the story of Colton Burpo, uh, who, a little boy, during uh, emergency appendectomy, had an experience of being removed from his body, taken up into heaven. And after he recovered from the surgery, he would share these stories with his parents that he had been to heaven. And he talked about these things that, unless he had actually been to heaven, there was no way for him to know. For example, he evidently talked about a, a little sister that he met that was the exact age of a baby that his mother had miscarried. Um, and he had no knowledge of that. And yet he, he talked about meeting this little sister. And then he also talked about uh, his great-grandfather, uh, a man who died 30 years before uh, Colton was ever born. He described him exactly. He described his personality and, and the conversations that they had and some memories that he shared, again, that Colton would have no knowledge of. Um, it was this uh, amazing story. And it took the, the, the country by storm. The, the book became a New York Times bestseller. The film did really, really well at the box office. Millions of dollars. Didn't do so hot on Rotten Tomatoes. I'll have you know. Um, so I encourage you to read the book. Um, and uh, he was interviewed all the time on all the, the talk shows and, and interviewing uh, in morning you know, news shows, Today Show, whatnot. And... Um, so it's a remarkable story, and I think its massive popularity was because of our fascination with heaven. I mean, regardless of whether people are, are religious or not, there's just this fascination with the afterlife, with, with heaven in particular. We want to know what it's like. and We want to know that it's for real. And I'm as fascinated by these kinds of stories about visits to heaven as the next person but do you know what's even more interesting? It's the fact that the company of heaven, the, the host of heaven, they are even more interested in what's happening here on earth 
than we are with what's happening in heaven. In fact, what brings the greatest rejoicing and and celebration in heaven is all about what happens here. Jesus talked about it in the passage that we just read uh, from Luke's gospel. Um, We're in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel, verses 1 to 10. If you want to open up the pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 874. If you brought your own Bible, please open them to Luke chapter 15, the first 10 verses. And what we have here is another one of these uh, scenes that we find in the Gospels where Jesus confronts the misguided notions that the religious elite have about God's economy of righteousness. You see, the Pharisees and scribes, as they're, they're called, they assume that heaven couldn't possibly want to have anything to do with earth earth and all of its broken, sinful types that are down here. Now, mind you, they they think of themselves as more heavenly than earthly, and yet here they are, they're grumbling about the one heavenly person they've ever met. Their particular grievance uh, here in this instance in Luke 15 is that Jesus associates with sinners and even breaks bread with them. Uh, This for them is clear evidence that Jesus is not a holy man, is not worthy of the title rabbi. And furthermore, of course, the idea that he is Messiah, that he's God's chosen one, well, that's completely beyond the pale. Because he's associating with sinners. But in the end, these religious leaders, they have, they have righteousness all wrong. And so they, they have the Lord of heaven all wrong. And so Jesus, he's going to set the scribes and the Pharisees uh, here in this context, but I would say he's setting the scribes and Pharisees in every generation. And by the way, there are scribes and Pharisees in this generation. There's probably a few of us uh, that are scribes and Pharisees right here in this room right now. He's going to set us all straight about heaven and earth and how these two relate to one another. And so he tells a series of parables uh, in chapter 15 that are all about things lost and found. And we're going to focus on the first two of these parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, uh, which are short, they're simple parables, and they are precursors to a much longer, more involved, more famous parable that you all probably know about, the prodigal son, or as some people like to call it, the parable of the loving father. And so as the Pharisees and the scribes are are grumbling in verse 2 that this man receives sinners and eats with them, Jesus uses these two parables to point out three things, I think, in particular. First, that the Lord's heart is toward the sinner. Secondly, that to be lost is to be lost. And third, to be found is to be carried with rejoicing to a celebration. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, these guys think that a righteous God's main aim 
it must be to maintain his righteousness. And to do so, that means he has to stay away from those who are unrighteous. But these prideful men, they think somehow that they have a righteousness of their own. I don't know how, but they do. I guess it's because they figure, well, we're the chosen ones of God, right, as the Hebrew people. And the leaders of the Hebrew people, we're the really chosen ones of God. And so they, they start playing God and, and trying to stay pure and, and detached from all those unsavory types that are there, these others who are the not chosen ones, right? They don't want to be tainted by the unrighteousness of their unchosenness. And I guess these guys, they just completely forgot their Hebrew Bible. They didn't read that section of Exodus that we just read a little while ago, forgot how stiff-necked their forebears were and the people from which they come, these quote-unquote chosen people worshiping their golden calves and whatnot. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they live this life where they are spending all their days identifying those that, in their opinion, uh, uh, are unrighteous. And they find every way that they can to keep those people at arm's length or even further, if preferable, right? So the best way to, to keep them away from themselves is to condemn. They condemn sinner after sinner. Now, of course, they're, they're right that God is righteous. They're right that God's righteousness will be maintained. But what they get wrong is this idea that his righteousness is somehow vulnerable if it were to come in contact with unrighteousness. They have this notion that, that unrighteousness is more contagious than righteousness. The truth is that the Lord's righteousness, though, is evident precisely because his heart is toward the sinner. His righteousness is on full display as he pursues the lost sinner in order that he or she might be made righteous, found and made righteous. That is the righteousness of God, that he is this God who goes after. His heart is toward the sinner. And the scribes and Pharisees, they have this false notion that they have this pure quality to them or something, that they're on track for heaven because they, they stay pristine, antiseptic, right? They're the first sort of religious germaphobes, if you will. At least this is their notion in, in their own heads because Jesus tells these parables to present a very, very different order of things. Verses seven and 10 say that the great joy of heaven is not when a so-called righteous person preserves some outward piety. No, the, the great joy of heaven comes when just one sinner repents. But why this urgency on the part of God for the sinner? Why such rejoicing at the repentance of, of a sinner? Why the big celebration over that? I think... Um, some of the reason that the scribes and Pharisees get this all wrong and don't even get the celebration notion is that they don't seem to have um, the same values as 
the company of heaven. And, and they don't actually understand the nature of sin in the first place, right? Here's the real problem. The truth is, is that the scribes and Pharisees who are so fixated on people's sins, they actually have an understanding of sin that's too weak. They don't really get it. But through these parables, Jesus makes clear that to be in sin is to be lost. And make no mistake, to be lost is to be lost. You see, with a weak notion of sin, the scribes and Pharisees, they can actually, and any one of us who has a weak notion of sin, we can look in the mirror and we can um, consider ourselves righteous, or at least mostly righteous. Yeah? You know, it's kind of like a version of that, that the prince's bride, you know, when they think, oh, well, the prince is dead, and Billy um, Crystal's character goes, no, he's only mostly dead. We're, only, we're mostly righteous, capable of maintaining our righteousness, buffing it up. But here's the thing, piousness, it makes for very poor self-analysis. According to Jesus, the lost are like lost sheep. And see, every one of Jesus' first listeners, they would have totally gotten what Jesus was getting at here in this parable of the lost sheep. They would have seen what this pastoral imagery was really uh, about in verses four to six. They would know that for a sheep uh, to be lost and separated from its flock, and more importantly, separated from its shepherd, that lost sheep has no chance. That's a death sentence. That sheep's never gonna find its way back to the flock on its own. That sheep is sure to die a terrible death in the jaws of a predator. So to say it's a lost sheep means it's lost forever. And Jesus says a sinner is like a lost sheep. Dead sheep walking. That's what he's saying. It seems that the scribes and the Pharisees, they just don't get this, right? So they, they really don't understand what a miracle it is for a lost sheep to be found. What's really being said here by Jesus is it's really a case of the dead being made alive, I'll fast forward and, and do a spoiler alert for the, the prodigal son. Remember at the end of that story when the dad is talking to the older brother and explaining why he's having this great celebration? He says, look, your brother, he was lost and now he's found. He was dead and alive again. Jesus is setting that up right here. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they just don't understand that. They also don't seem to understand that to be mostly righteous is to not be righteous at all. Uh, the parable of the lost coin illustrates that to be lost is to have no status, no value. So if a coin's value is its, its, its uh, um, capacity to purchase, well then a lost coin is worthless, right? I mean, it, you can't go into the store and say, well, uh, cashier, um, before I lost it, I had a coin that was worth such and such amount, um, can I still purchase this item with the coin that I no longer possess? How far is that going to take you? Not far. Likewise, to be in sin is to be 
worthless in kingdom terms. It reminds me, um, these, these scribes and Pharisees, uh, remind me of, of that scene in Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus says, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Piousness gets you nowhere. So to find a lost coin is to have it transformed from worthlessness to its full worth. So to be lost is to be lost. But equally, to be found, wow, that is to be found, truly found. When one has this robust understanding of the depths of sin, then the good news of, of the shepherd's rescue of the sheep or the woman's discovery of the lost coin well, it's seen in all of its full glory, right? The only way from being lost, we find, is to be raised up in the hand of the Savior. It's a true miracle. And we should get this on multiple levels. You know, I was thinking about this uh, in preparation for this sermon. I was thinking about um, how often this searching and finding of lost things, that narrative, it permeates pop culture. Um, just think about how many different movies are all about that, right? Whether it's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark or Monty Python and the Holy Grail or uh, National Treasure or, you know, all these TV shows about cold cases and novels about cold cases, or even talent shows, right? It's America's Got Talent, finding that lost diamond in the rough, American Idol. It's about finding this hidden treasure out there. And then there's the way that lost and found narrative resonates with our own personal lives, right? Whether it's a, a child who's lost a shoe as you're trying to get out the door for school, or it's you know, the lost remote control so you don't have to figure out whether or not your television actually does have buttons hidden on it somewhere that actually would turn it on and off and change channels and volume, heaven forbid. Or the thing that's big now, I think, is how many of us lose our username and password? God, it's such a pain. Ah. Oh. Sorry, I just had to take a moment there for that. Right, so this idea of finding the lost thing, that, that should resonate with us always a cause for rejoicing and celebration. And what Jesus is telling us here is that in heaven, finding the lost is the story. It is the, the narrative to which the angels and archangels and all the company of heaven are glued. They are all in for this. I mean, I want you to imagine this. I want you to just, if you need to close your eyes, fine. But just, just imagine that the day that you are convicted of your sin and recognize how lost you are in sin, the day that you acknowledge that you are helpless and you look up 
and you see the shepherd coming toward you and he picks you up and he places you on his shoulders and he carries you back to the flock, back home to safety. When that happens, up in heaven, everything stops. It's like everybody says, time out, stop, look, another sinner has repented and there's a huge celebration, rejoicing. They go nuts. Friends, I was in England when England beat Argentina in the World Cup, okay? Honking horns, traffic stop, people screaming, going nuts, and that was microscopic in comparison to the celebration in heaven when you repent. When the shepherd picks you up and saves you More than that, to be found, friends, must remember is that it is to be carried by the shepherd. We don't pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. Don't you believe it? We are carried to join this great celebration. We're brought into it all by the merciful, graceful, strong arms of our Savior. And when we understand that, um, there's a humility that emerges. There's a devotion that emerges to Almighty God. And it comes from this knowledge of, of we've been saved. We were lost and we're found. We were dead and we're alive again. We know how lost and dead in our transgressions we were and that now we're found. We're alive. We're given infinite worth in God's eyes. And ultimately, here's what Jesus hopes as he tells these parables, as he is convicting us, these scribes and Pharisees, through telling these parables. He's giving us this vision of God and the values of heaven, but he's also saying, hey, he's hoping that we, the hearers, would not uh, just be hearers of the word only, but would become doers of the word as well. His hope is that those who have been found, would join the Lord in the search for the lost. With our hearts toward the sinner, like, like a great group of, of under-shepherds, sub-shepherds of the good shepherd. Ultimately, what Jesus wants all of us here is to understand is that instead of, of having our eyes focused on heaven, we should have our eyes focused on what heaven has its eyes focused on. Jesus shares these parables in order that we too would be seeking the lost as those who, by God's grace, he wants to find them. Rather than looking for the sinner and saying, yep, condemned. We would be those who would come out proclaiming the good news of the shepherd. Of the rejoicing in heaven over repentance. And we would, when one does come to that saving faith, we would have great celebration, joy, delight over even just one. So that's our call. First and foremost, to understand that the, the Lord's heart is toward us as sinners. He comes after you. If you have not met the Lord Jesus, don't know him, then just hear this. Know that he is for you. 
He's coming toward you with loving arms of salvation. Making sure that we understand that out here in our sin, we are not just sort of misplaced. We are lost. We are gone apart from him. And ultimately, when we are found, it is being picked up, carried with rejoicing to the greatest celebration you could ever imagine. Amen? Amen.